The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit downloading that Pam Anderson ebook and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 253 with guest Rocky Lodka, recorded live Friday, June 29th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now, bring the VB.NET Masterclass on-site to your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who, when his kids won't let him sleep... Threatens to have him reformatted. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. You know, Lawrence writes these jokes. <laughs> he's, nice some one. of them, he says. He's, he's here editing some of them. And uh, sometimes we'll be here at 3 in the morning, you know, and just brainstorming on the dumb jokes that we can do at the beginning of this dumb show. And sometimes they come out okay. And but, sometimes. But now what we did, see, what we did right there is we just stepped out of character. Now people can see the warts. So and maybe sometime we'll have a behind-the-scenes at .NET Rocks uh, show where there's no guest. It's just all, you know, like we'll interview the editors and stuff. Oh, know? no. Why don't you make a video of that? Oh, wait, we've done and that. I, I see a bunch of people <laughs> thinking to themselves, oh, remind me not to listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear you out there. I can read your mind, listener. All right. Well, um, let's get right into the weird music that introduces uh, a bit called Better Know a Framework. Better. Better Know Framework. And, uh, you know, our intent is just to, by osmosis, make you smarter about the .NET framework and the things that are in there. So um, I can't. I can't get uh, through this whole series without talking about System Collections Stack for LIFO, or last in, first out, buffers, and System.Collections.Q for FIFO buffers. Very nice. So these two little guys are in, obviously in System.Collections. You got the stack, you got the queue. The stack is, well, if you don't know what a stack is, uh, you might want to brush up on your basic computer science. But I like to think of a stack as a stack of trays in a cafeteria. You know how you, you, you have them in a stack, and the, the first one that you put on the stack is the next one that comes off the stack. So it's just a way to access memory where uh, you know you stuff things in, and then you take them out in the, in the reverse order that you put them in. So the last one you put in is the first one that comes out. And, of course, you can put anything in a stack. It's just a collection. Now, there's also a queue, which is not a message queue, by the way. A lot of people have thought about, uh, you know, message queuing, MSMQ. That's a different thing. We're talking about a basic memory structure here, a queue. A queue is a thing where um, you just basically stick things in, and the first thing that comes in is the first thing that comes out. And there could be uh, 
you know, a bunch of things in there at any given time or it could be empty. What I like about the queue is that you don't have to take the next item out of the queue in order to access it. You can peek at the next item to come out of the queue, do your work on it, and when you're all done, that's when you take it out of the queue. So I kind of like that. Just your basic stack and queue, and that's better no framework for today, Mr. Campbell. Very nice. All very, all the, the funny thing is these are nice modern wrappers over very fundamental comsci concepts. Right. And by the way, thanks goes out to Lawrence Mingle for suggesting that I do those. And you know, they were on my list, but to tell you the truth, I thought they'd be so rudimentary that uh you know, people would turn tune them out. But you never know. Well, the, and the funny part is, often people who are familiar with these things tend to write their own, and you just don't need to. That's right. All right, so you got an email for us, Mr. Campbell? I do have an email for us, and I'm going to prefix this email with anything in XML bracketing is going to be excluded from now on, because this guy, Jim Holmes, is killing me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's about show 249, which was uh, the Dom Box and Chris Sells talking about the state of publishing. Right. And he starts out, guys, I love your show. It's, and there's an XML reference that's been deleted here that means nice things for, for uh, about us. I have a three-hour daily commute, and .NET Rocks is a great way to spend the time. .NET Rocks has changed my life. Wow. I enjoyed hearing Don Box and Chris Sells talk about the state of publishing in show 249, but I have to disagree with the general premise that tech books are going the way of obsolete technology. I may be a bit biased having co-authored a 1,300-page book, which not even my mom read. Bit biased? Okay. <laughs> but I think there will always be a solid market for the dead tree versions of geek books. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, solid. So, I don't know about solid, but a market for sure. Wobbly. <laughs> Real books offer me a great many things that blog posts, online articles, and other bits and pieces generally don't. First off, a lot of wicked smart folks like Michelle LaRue Bustamante and Yuval Lowy don't often post online, so it's a lot harder to get insight from someone at their level. Um, Secondly, I don't know. Well, okay. Well, and, and I just love the fact that he's listing .NET Rocks uh, guests. That's that's good. I like that. Yeah. Secondly, the breadth and depth of coverage on a particular topic is much better than any single or series of blog posts. I can also get that breadth in a consistent voice from one or two authors in a book, while blog posts will be snippets of content from a metric crapload of various authors. Is he Canadian? Metric. How crapload? many? How many pounds in a metric crapload? <laughs> No, 2,000 or so? <laughs> Thirdly, I retain mental bookmarks to content in books much better than online material. I can remember which book to pull off the shelf to find salient pieces of information, while it's often near impossible to retrace my Google searches to pull up a page I'd read last week, much less eight months ago. Well, that's just because you don't save your favorites folder correctly. That's there, all. Yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm, I, Jim, you're not selling me on your plan here. No, I'm not convinced either. But one more paragraph, and this one will, will grab you. Lastly, and most importantly to me, is the Zen thing. Larger contextual issues are often completely missed from blog posts, but I can read some background and understand the broader strokes from folks like MLB. Can I call her that? McConnell, Venkat, he doesn't know me, but I'll use his first name anyway, Scott Hansman, <laughs> etc., etc. You made passing references to the Zen thing during the podcast, sure. but I thought you really didn't give it enough weight. Well, I mean, how far can you go into it? I mean, it, you know, it's it's just one one facet of the entire discussion, I, you know. I'm, well, and I'm, again, still not entirely convinced. I have definitely seen Zen-style blog posts where it's like, look, this is the point. This is why we're doing this, those sorts of posts. And then you dig into the meat and you dig into the individual implementations based on that. Well, and it used to be that the publisher's job or the editor's job was to take a blathering of material from the author and then edit it and turn it into something useful. But that doesn't really happen with the technical books so much. Well, and you know, here therein lies the problem with technical books, which is that they, you know, they sell so few of a given book that it's just not worth spending money on them to make them great, which is a nasty negative spiral. Well, and the reality is that they just don't last very long, uh, relevant wise, relevancy right. wise. Well, because we keep shipping new versions of everything. 
Anyway, let me wrap this up with uh, many thanks for the work you put into recording and producing the shows. My earlier levity aside, Dotted Rocks has really been a lifesaver for me on any number of levels. Regards, Jim Holmes. P.S. You guys really need to put Code Mash on your calendar for January 2008. Last year's conference was unique, and a great time was had by a lot of folks from a lot of different domains. I'd even bring along a wee dram or two of good single malt if you show up. Okay, where and when? <laughs> Bribery with scotch will get you everywhere. Yeah, it's kind of like I'll show you yours if you show me mine. You know, nice. bring a glass. <laughs> so, what uh, code mash is he talking about, Richard? He's actually talking about the code mash at codemash.org, which is currently showing as uh, the 2007 edition, but I'm sure there's a new one coming up for 2008. And that was uh, all based around Ohio. Okay. And the Great Lakes there, they had four different user groups. They had the, uh, they, they had the Great Lakes guys and the Central Ohio guys, Northwest Ohio guys. Um, they, of course, their whole line was a, it was a .NET and Java integration, mashing those things together. Yeah, mash up, code mash. Yeah, and we talked about that with uh, Bill Wagner and Diane Marsh, if right. you recall. That's right. That's the one where they were having the indoor uh, water park or something like that. Yeah, they, they, they go to the Kalahari Resort in the Nia Center. Wild. Well, and our friend Greg Brill at Infusion in New York City, working in the financial district down there, is still looking to increase his staff with .NET Rocks listeners. A whole bunch of happy employees now pulled from the .NET Rocks pool of listeners. If you're interested in spending a year in New York City working in an exciting field and uh, living rent-free in an apartment in New York City for a year, check out shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, Richard. Well, let's bring on our esteemed guest, Rockford Lotka, who has been on the show many times, is the principal technology evangelist for Magenic. He is also the author of numerous books on business objects, including uh, those that feature his CSLA.net framework. And uh, now he's here to talk about CSLA.net 3.0 for .NET 2.0 and 3.0. Uh, welcome, Rocky. Thank you. It's good to talk to you again. Yes, it is. It's a pleasure to be on the show. It's been a lot of years now. You've done, uh, when was the first version of CSLA? Well, if you count the COM or, or VB6 versions, uh, the first version was in 1996. I was going to wow. say, it was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, because there, yeah, there was a whole COM implementation of this before you switched to .NET. So, I'd say more than 10 years now. Yeah, it's it's been a long time, but hey, I'm still having fun. Well, you know, there are probably some people out there who still don't know what CSLA.net is, so why don't you tell us? Well, CSLA is, it stands for the Component-Based Scalable Logical Architecture. and But what it really is, is my attempt to fill in some of the gaps around .NET development for when you want to build something like a, an object-oriented business layer that can sit underneath Windows, Web, WPF, or other type of interfaces. So my, my, the whole goal is to help make it easier to create uh, an organized layer for your business logic. Okay. And uh, we've talked about this over the years, but uh, just give us a quick synopsis of some of the, the features that have been in CSLA.net, uh, previous versions before 3.0. Well, there's two key focus areas in CSLA. One is to support the UI developer. And so in that space, uh, CSLA implements all of the data binding interfaces and, and all the other complex goo that you have to implement in, a, in an object to fully support data binding. And it also supports uh, what I call N-level undo, which is basically the ability to implement a cancel button in a UI in one line of code. Yeah. And then in version 2.0, I introduced formalized validation and authorization rule management. So it makes it very easy to implement uh, your validation rules, data manipulation, and authorization inside the object. And then on the other side of it is object persistence. And a lot of people think or compare CSLA to uh, object relational mapping tools, which, which it's not. It actually sits on top of them. But it does have this idea of mobile objects, which is that CSLA has got this concept inside called a data portal that 
allows your objects to move from an application server to a client workstation, let the user manipulate the object, and then the object can go back to the application server uh, in order to talk to your data access technology. And you also um, abstract out the, 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 the transport for that. So in the past, yeah. you, you, were, you could have used web services remoting. Now you're probably using uh, the WCF now. Yeah, that's exactly right. In uh, CSLA.NET 1, I used remoting because remoting, when .NET came out, was the obvious choice. And, of course, over time, remoting kind of lost favor. And then so in CSLA 2, I opened it up and made it into uh, uh, a channel adapter provider. And so then it supported remoting and web services and enterprise services. And as you say, now in 3.0, uh, of course, WCF is the, the big new thing. So it obviously supports that now. I'm trying to remember why remoting actually fell out of favor. The only thing I could think of is that the Indigo team told us it was going to fall out of favor. Now, I can tell you. I mean, Rocky will tell you, too. But there, there were just problems with remoting. Certain serialization things didn't work across the, across the wire, didn't work very well. Because it was, was actually a binary protocol. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there was also limitations on the size of objects. I think after we got to a certain size, it just gave you a big bonk and didn't work. Um, yeah, then there's the whole serialization versioning issue, which has been solved in CS in uh, in uh, WCF. So well, yeah. I, I think "solved" is maybe a strong word, but they gave us <laughs> some tools anyway. Well, we're getting closer to solving it anyway. So what do you think about that? Let's go down that rabbit hole. Um, what I know is that there's a, a, a way that uh, the deserialization engine can, instead of comparing versions and saying, oh, this version of this object is different, or this version of the serialization deserialization engine is different, we have uh, the, the basic idea that it ignores elements of the object that are new since the version that it understands. And so, on the one hand, it doesn't blow up, but on the other hand, you may not, you may have wanted or expected that data and not gotten it. Am I making sense? Oh, yeah. And, and But I, I think to put it in context, it's really important to draw a, a pretty clear distinction between client-server development and service-oriented development. Because if you're building a service-oriented application, pretty much, if you're doing a good job anyway, by definition, you're writing a whole bunch of very, very paranoid code. Right. And so <laughs> you're going to be in a... <laughs> I'm just true. imagining paranoid code there. <laughs> Your code smokes a lot of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if that's what it takes, that's what you got to do. Yeah. So... You know, you're going to be in, in a better position in your code to handle a field that comes through, you know, that you expected, but it came through as null or something. Right. Because um, that's what's going to happen with the new versioning technology is you just won't get a field. And right, which is fine if you don't care. Yeah, it's fine if you don't care, but, you know, maybe you did care and you won't and know. You, yeah, and if you do care, then part of your service-oriented contract had better be a fault by which you can report back to the caller and say, hey, guy, you know, I right. actually care about this. Right. But in a client-server world, um, things tend to be a little more tightly coupled. Yeah. And the reality is that when you're building an, uh, an application and you, for instance, add a new field, you it, in most cases it's unrealistic to think that that field cannot carry through all the way from the user interface to the database. Right. And so in that case, I don't think you care as much about some of the new versioning features because, you know, if I added this new field in the database and didn't add it in the UI, then I probably didn't finish the feature that the user asked for. Mm. Which, you know, it's a whole different world from the service-oriented thing where a service might say, oh, yeah, we're going to take this new field, but we know that there's possibly consumers that aren't going to give it to us, and so we'll take steps to, mm. you know, maybe provide default values or, you know, and if, if some client applications don't care about the field, we don't care either. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's a whole different mindset. And I, I bring this up because CSLA, um, first and foremost, is designed to support the client-server world. You know, the, the, the line of business application development where, uh, you know, 99 times out of 100, when you add a field, you have to add it everywhere anyway or else it, there was no point. Sure. Sure. And I guess what it what it allows, as you say, in, the NESA, in an SOA world is that, you know, you can actually make a change to one service without breaking another. Uh, however, you know, you do get the chance to work on these things one at a time, I, I guess. Well, at least in theory. In theory. Well, I mean, the big thing here is being able to roll out each piece as you build it without breaking everything else. I hate the great dead drop rollout sure. where we modify everything end to end and then try and ship it all at once one day. And we're down the whole time we're trying to ship all that code. And and your, your chances of succeeding are so low. You're going to roll that, all of that back. Yeah, been there. <laughs> so, I mean, looking at it from a CSLA perspective, CSLA really supports... WCF in, in two different ways, because one way is that WCF is used as a new channel inside the data portal. But in that context, it's being used um, in exactly the same way that remoting was being used. Yeah. And, and, of course, WCF is the replacement for remoting. So Microsoft built all the plumbing necessary to make it do exactly the same thing. And, and so I leverage that. But the other piece of the support is that you can use CSLA objects to implement WCF services hmm. Hmm. or to implement WCF, like an application that consumes WCF services. Yeah, of course. And in that case, you can be completely service-oriented because what's actually going across the wire are not business objects anymore. They're messages that are being sent between two different applications. And so then you can be entirely and happily service-oriented. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, Web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast, compact, and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a new monitor. Obviously, in doing uh, CSLA.NET 3.0, you, you pretty much had to dig into WCF. W was there anything in there that uh, that you didn't like? You have any complaints about WCF? No, I wouldn't say that I have any complaints. I like the model quite a bit. You know, it's a much more consistent and intuitive programming model. Um, if there was one area, I guess, that I would kind of criticize a bit. And, and it's somewhat humorous in my mind, is that one of the reasons remoting fell out of favor was that most people found it way too hard to configure. You know, typing those six to ten lines of XML in your config file, um, and you know, they're all case-sensitive and very idiosyncratic. Touchy, yeah. yeah. It was very cut and paste. You got it working once, and you never touched it again. Yeah, exactly. People found that to be a major barrier. And WCF, by and large, requires more XML than remoting did. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I, I suspect that the major barrier to WCF adoption is, is going to be this configuration issue, just like it was with remoting. 
when we were always told that there's going to be this very high level layer that makes it very easy, and then when you need to drill down, you can. So one thing to think about, though, with with that is is it is true that there's a higher level of abstraction because they provide a set of pre-built channels. And in that case, the amount of XML you have to type in is pretty comparable to what you did with remoting. But it was supposed to be less. Well, yeah. But at least the way that I was using remoting within CSLA, it turns out to be about the same. Okay. Yeah, no better or worse, but but I found it to be slightly disappointing because, yeah, like you say, you know, one would hope it's less or easier. But the upside now is in in WCF, you've got a a much richer uh, model for dealing with uh, communications, uh, remote communications. Oh, yeah. I mean, people ask if they should switch, and my answer is absolutely yes. (laughs) If If you have the choice, because you get all of the new security features and and you know, I mean, it's just much more robust and and capable than either web services or remoting. So it's it's definitely a, a pretty nice step forward. Now, what's neat though is that WCF can use all these transports underneath, including sockets. Right? Have yeah. you have you done any work with using WCF with sockets? Uh, I haven't done it with socket. Well, with the TCP channel, which is basically sockets. Right. Yeah. Um, I've used, you know, tested with the HTTP channel, the TCP channel, and the name pipes, which is nice if you're doing everything on one computer, but between processes for some reason. What, this is just a, a side question, but when would you use one over the other? I mean, I, I understand when you would use uh, HTTP for firewall reasons, but is there any ever any good reason to use uh, TCP, the TCP channel? Well, one of the main reasons that people, especially web developers, um, use an application server, because if you think about it, your web server is an application server. Exactly. So having an actual application server kind of seems redundant, but people do that for security reasons. And in many cases, they consciously choose to use a different protocol and a different port to go from the web server through the second firewall to get to their app server. And so things like the TCP support in WCF, you know, there you go. You've got a, a slightly different protocol. And really a rather generic port. kind of uh, protocol. Shift to any port, you know, communicate the way you want. So that, in other words, they put up a big firewall and punch a hole in it with one port, and that's the only thing that goes through. Yeah. yeah. And that way their, their web server can sit in kind of a, you know, the DMZ concept. Right. right. And, you know... So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm sure there might be other scenarios, but that's the to me that's the obvious one. Yeah, the other scenario that I bump into periodically with app servers is uh, in the high scaling environments where you get a very asymmetrical load. Either the web servers are working really hard, and so uh, you want to offload some work to app servers, but you need fewer app servers, or there's some kinds of extremely long running processes that you want to carve off and not tie up threads in the web server for it. So you might end up with a whole bunch of app servers, just a few web servers, that sort of scenario. I also imagine the TCP channel be useful if you're using uh, WCF between two entities on the same machine. Well, that's probably true, although I think named pipes is, is a better alternative in most cases because yeah. it's faster. Hey, whatever happened to memory mapped files? I don't know. Really? Oh, kinda... Wasn't it you that told me about memory mapped files a long time ago? This oh, was, I think we talked about it on an older show. Yeah. I mean, memory mapped files are, are a wonderful, powerful feature of Windows, but um, an MSMQ uses them. But I don't know that uh, WCF uses them unless you're using one of the queued channels. Memory mapped files, um, basically just another communication mechanism that's just closer to the metal. It's a, it is what it sounds like, right? Yeah, it's it's using the Windows paging system to load chunks of a file into memory as though it were uh, you know random access memory, but it's actually on disk. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. So um, we talked about WCF support. What about WPF support? Presentation Foundation. What's uh, what are you doing in that area, if anything? 
Well, in that area, believe it or not, I spent a, a lot more time than I did on WCF. Hmm. Uh, I found putting the WCF support into CSLA to be relatively straightforward, but WPF is definitely a version 1.0 technology, and at least compared to Windows Forms, is missing quite a few features. And so I spent a fair amount of time writing controls to try and, and kind of fill in the gaps to make the whole experience more comparable to Windows Forms. Well, what do you mean by missing features? Well, one of the big things that WPF gives you is a rich data binding model, and which it does. However, if you compare it to Windows Forms, it's missing some things like the error provider control. And mm. one of the big things that you gain with CSLA objects is that it, they, because of their full support for data binding, you get full support for the error provider in Windows Forms. And so as the object detects that certain user data um, is invalid, just instantly and automatically without you writing any code, um, little error icons show up next to controls and cool stuff like that. Is there any extender provider features in uh, in WPF? Well, the infrastructure is there, huh. but the controls themselves are not. So you had to write yourself an error provider. So I ended up writing an error provider equivalent um, that ties into the, to the standard data binding interfaces. And uh, I wrote a, a similar thing for uh, authorization, which I had to do in Windows Forms, too, because there is no official support for authorization at in a field level. In other words, level. enabling yeah. and disabling fields and things like that based yeah, on exactly. the rules. Yeah. And uh, similar to the web, WPF has got the concept of a, of a data provider control, which is very nice. But... Again, similar to the web, their their object provider control doesn't work with rich objects like CSLA objects are. And so I had to write my own uh, data provider control in order to you know, get the kind of support that I wanted. And in fact, I was able to take that further because my data provider control understands how to save objects too, not just retrieve them. Right. And... So the, the really cool side effect is that for simple data entry forms, you can often do the entire form purely in XAML. Is it no yeah. BB or C sharp code at all? Right. And I, I mean, you know, so WPF, even though it's relatively immature, and you know the tooling is just now starting to show up, uh, it's pretty clear to me that as a long term strategy, it's going to be powerful because. Um, in my testing and the stuff that I've been doing, I'm seeing substantially, I'm having to write substantially less C Sharp or VB than I do in Windows Forms. And you have to write less code in Windows Forms than you do in Web Forms. And so it's just kind of this, you know, it's, a, it's a clear winner in terms of writing less code. Is this sort of a declarative forms engine? The, the XAML part certainly is. Yeah. And so that's where I spent an awful lot of my time is trying to, make these um, CSLA controls that allow you to do a whole bunch of declarative things to interact with CSLA objects so that you can avoid writing, uh, you have to write very little code. In fact, really the only code you have to write in, in behind a, a typical WPF form um, is maybe some authorization code to turn on or off certain like links or whatever, and any sort of exception handling so that if an object refuses to save itself, maybe for some reason that you can give the user a meaningful dialogue explaining, you know, what went wrong. But I could see why you had to engineer an awful lot of code around that. I mean, some, A, getting your head around this new model because it's quite different, but then trying to bring, you've got an awful lot of functionality around making forms building easier, and Microsoft didn't automatically build that for you. Right, that's Although they again, they provide the the plumbing, which is really cool. And you're right; you got to get your head around the model. But it it is once you do the WPF model is really very nice. Yeah, there's a lot there. I heard it from Mark Miller, who dove. You know, one of the reasons we haven't done a Mondays in so long is because Mark's been up to his ears in WPF, and uh, he's trying to make it his mission in life to be like the you know the world's biggest WPF expert. So he's diving into it 
you know, wholeheartedly. And uh, he says it's it's as if it never ends. You know, it's so deep, it's so rich. But um, let, well, let's talk about the other the other prongs of .NET 3.0. Or if you, we don't call them prongs, I know. What do we call them? What's the official word? Whatever they are. Uh, workflow. Is there any interface interaction between you and workflow? Well, you know, I spent a fair amount of time researching that area, you know, workflow and, and how it might work. And in the end, my conclusion was that there was nothing that I, at least nothing I could see that I could offer that provided value. Um, just automatically, without me doing any work inside of CSLA, you can write workflow activities that use CSLA objects. Sure. Just, that, that's a no-brainer. It just works fine. And on the reverse, you can, if, if you in, are in the middle of saving an order object, for instance, you might launch a workflow from inside your object to finish shipping the order or something like that. And there too, uh, you know, there's there's nothing. That's an easy chunk of code to write, and it's something that you would just invoke to do the workflow. So again, there was nothing to be done inside of CSLA itself to make this work better well, or that, easier. That's a pretty good testament to workflow. I mean, the fact is, it works with any objects. You know, that that's what it's meant to do. Yeah. So the only interesting catch that that I'm aware of is that workflow allows you to suspend or resume uh, a workflow instance. And when that happens, all of your public dependency properties that are on the workflow get serialized as well. And that would work. CSLA objects are happy to allow you to serialize them. Hmm. Um, that's part of the whole mobile object thing. Right. But the trick is that there's that whole version sensitivity issue. And in talking to the workflow team, um, they indicated to me that they're using the binary formatter to do this, which is the same formatter used by remoting. Right. And so the the risk that you run is that if you suspend a workflow and then upgrade all of your business DLLs and then resume the workflow, it may not be able to resume. Oh. If If your dependency properties include instances of custom objects, this isn't a CSLA problem, right? This is a much right. broader issue. Right, right. And so the only real thing to watch out for, as far as I'm aware, is to make sure that you don't put custom objects as public dependency properties on a workflow. That could be a pretty serious limitation, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, it certainly uh, it means that each activity has to retrieve its object, interact with it, and... Yeah, and it can really only maintain things like ob uh, object keys or, or identifiers at a public or you know at a global level. Yeah, right. So it, it's definitely something to kind of be aware of, and, and yeah, it could be a limitation. Is the uh, WCF serialization programming model um, better in many ways than uh, the binary formatter? How is it better? WCF has got two different serialization mechanisms. It's got the data contract serializer, which in its default mode works almost the same as the XML serializer used by web services since day one. Except that, like you pointed out earlier, it, it does have versioning capabilities to have optional fields and so forth, and so it's all very nice. And it also lets you uh, opt-in at a field or property level, so it's more flexible in terms of what can be included in the XML stream. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, it has many of the same limitations as the XML serializer in that it won't keep the shape of your object graph. If you've got multiple references to the same object, when you deserialize, they'll actually show up as multiple object instances, and so the, the object graph can become broken in, in a sense. Um, but then there's a, a more complex mode that you can run the data contract serializer in that will preserve the shape of the object graph, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Uh, but then the XML is slightly more complex and by definition then is harder to parse on a non.NET platform. Right. 
And then the third option is what's called the net data contract serializer. And it's a variation of the data contract serializer that's designed to replicate the behavior of the binary formatter. And so, although it produces XML instead of, you know, some binary blob, but semantically it's equivalent. And so that in my data portal channel, that's what I'm using because the data portal actually clones objects across the network, which is exactly what the net data contract serializer is designed to do. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Any luck with uh, serializing an iDictionary? Well, there, there you come back to the net data contract serializer can do that because it can serialize any serializable .NET type or any .NET type that's marked with data contract. And that's the key, is that the, the net data contract serializer honors the, the serializable attribute, so it's backward compatible with everything that we've had in .NET since day one. Nice. Hmm. I knew those guys did some good work there. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, there's obviously a huge amount of thought that went into spanning this wide spectrum from the needs of the pure SOA, you know, loosely coupled XML universe back down to the, um, we, you know, client server, we want to move rich.net types universe. Back and forth, yeah. Yeah, remoting worked very, very good for me. Why would I move? <laughs> you know, then, you know, the, they didn't break those guys. They still are going to get that benefit. Yeah, it's. I, I'm really impressed by how well they accomplished, in my view, both ends of that spectrum and really kind of open it up so you can pick points in between that might fit your particular needs. So, uh, Rocky, where do you see Silverlight affecting uh, CSLA.net? Obviously, you've been working with WPF, and there's a relationship there. Yes, there is a relationship, although you know, certainly Silverlight is a... Uh, a small subset of the overall WPF. Yeah, very small. Just, not that Silverlight's small per se, but that WPF is so vast. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way to put it. Um, and I have been putting some thought into uh, the creation of something that I'm at least tentatively calling CSLA Lite. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Well, the interesting thing is that Silverlight runs inside of a very strict sandbox. Yeah, and we're talking Silverlight 1.1, the other one, the interesting one with the real interesting it. one where there's a CLR running at the client, which yeah, is actually exactly. a pretty cool feature for for you know click once apps too. Well, but see, click once is interesting because when you're using click once, you have the real .NET, and so you can tap into all of the capabilities, and so CSLA as it stands works great with click once. But when you start going into the Silverlight world, you lose things that, that CSLA relies on, like some private reflection. So there goes N-level undo. And at least right now, Silverlight doesn't have data binding support. So that's pretty harsh. But hopefully that, you know, it will have data binding when they're done. Mm-hmm. Um, you lose the ability to use uh, WCF or remoting. And so there's a whole bunch of things that just kind of go away. And so what I've been researching is how much of CSLA is left if you take away all those parts. And if there's things like N-level undo that I'm not willing to give up, then is there another way to do it that would work inside of that sandbox? And, And the answer is yes, just it might require a little more work on the part of the business object developer. Hmm. But that might be a fair trade, right? If you, if you're able to get um, the validation, authorization, and level undo and data binding support from CSLA in an object that looks pretty close to a standard CSLA object, maybe with just an extra couple methods that do some work so that I don't have to use reflection, then to me that seems like a pretty good win. I think know, so too, yeah. To suddenly yeah, have that as a web app, I mean, that's pretty potent stuff. Wow. Yep. Well, I, I find that aspect of Silverlight, I think, is often overlooked. People look at it as a Flash competitor, which is fine, 
But I look at it and say, you know, an awful lot of business applications don't um, need to interact with client-side resources. They're just data entry screens or, or ways of looking at data. Yeah. And all of those could run inside of Silverlight. And now also be cross-platform and run on a Mac. Just like that, exactly. Just like that, yeah. Yeah, that, that's huge. If you could get a, CS, a CSLA light running that would let me take the work I've already done in CSLA and with some changes be able to put it onto a Mac in that form. Rocky, you're my hero. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so CSLA light is on your radar screen. What else is uh, coming up? What do you, what's, what's in the works for the next version? Well, the next version will most likely be called CSLA 3.5. For obvious <laughs> reasons. Yep. There you go. And like .NET 3.5, it'll probably be a bigger change than the 3.0 version. Because you can, And you can tell that by the point .5. That makes it so clear. Yeah, exactly. So is Link going to rock your world or what? Well... I'm not sure that Link itself is going to be that big of a of a thing in that, to a large degree, it replaces, well, well Link and the Entity Framework combined kind of replace ADO and or the data set. Right. Well, he just said the EF word. We're going to have to have a discussion about that sometime. Uh-oh. But, uh, different show, different show. Different show. But Link itself sits on top of a set of language features that are quite interesting. Um, and you know some of the like extension methods, anonymous types, and so forth. And so some of those might have some interesting impacts on the way that you build or interact with business objects. And so that'll be, I think, in some ways, the bigger the bigger shift. But even accommodating links. So if you just sit back and say, you know, link for SQL replaces or potentially replaces the way that you've used ADO.NET in the past then there's a number of things that I can do inside of CSLA to make it a lot easier to um, put link underneath a CSLA object, basically. And so that's where I'm going to be putting a lot of energy. So the last piece of .NET 3.0, of course, is card space. And uh, how does that affect CSLA.NET? Really, card space has very little impact. Uh, directly on CSLA. CSLA, starting in version 2, has got a nice extensible way of creating custom authentication tokens or, or principal objects inside of .NET. And Cardspace similarly ties directly into the pre-existing principal concepts in .NET. And so they end up being entirely synergistic. So if you're building uh, a website that uses card spaces, and somebody logs in with a card, what happens behind the scenes is that a principal object gets created, and just by default, because CSLA already you know, rests on top of the way .NET principles work, your, your objects intrinsically get access to the information from that principle. Okay. So there's really not a whole lot to do. It's not just going to work. No, exactly, which, again, is... Yeah, you know, this is the beauty of working in .NET, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and they, they, they didn't do anything wrong there either, that it was just, it continued to work with the existing authentication model, even though it uses this new resource. And, yeah, and if you, know, if you have an application server and you want to do some sort of impersonation all the way through, you might end up creating a custom principle that wraps or, or pulls the data out of the card so that it can actually carry it through in, you know, that, that's one of the interesting side effects here is that Windows identities already have this impersonation model built directly into the operating system. Right. So if you use Windows off on the web server, that user identity can carry through to your application server all by itself. But if you're using any sort of forms-based or custom authentication on the web server, then you're left doing your own impersonation as it carries through into the application server. And CSLA offers some tools around that uh, if you're using a custom uh, principal object. And that you know ties back in potentially to card spaces in some ways as well. Yeah, so now I'm thinking about a guy who's currently using form space authentication, wanting to move the card space and then also 
uh, working with CSLA at the same time. They're going to have to do a little more work. Yeah, they might. They, they might have to either, they probably will have to tweak their uh, authentication process up front so that when they create their custom principal object, that they can get the right information either from the card or from the login form or whatever. But it, it's not going to be a lot of work there. No. Min- just minor changes. And so far, all you've, uh, all we've gone through here are support for the new features in, uh, in .NET 3.0, which is really all .NET 3.0 is. All of the underlying stuff is still .NET 2.0. These are just new libraries, which it, it irks me that we went up a version number because I think people are a lot more threatened by the fact that we, the number went from two to three than the actual impact it's going to have on their systems. Is this true for CSLA as well? It is, and and already in my beta releases, what I've discovered is that I have to spend a lot of effort emphasizing that CSLA 3.0 works perfectly well on .NET 2. In other words, you don't even need .NET 3 to use CSLA 3. We're still trying to educate the public on what .NET 3.0 actually is. It's 2.0++, really. Well, and it irks me. This should have been 2.5. It would have yeah. made things a lot easier. And I got to presume that you have followed this foolishness just to keep things clear, too, that this is 3 that works with .NET 3 or is designed for .NET 3, even though it still work with 2, uh, I, so I you actually, don't get your numbering sequence out of they, And, of course, the scary part is I look at the specs on .NET 3.5 and say, this should, should have four. been 4. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So we should have had 3.0 be 2.5 and then 3.5 be 3 and everything would be fine. But it's too late now. Hey, hey guys, just call us. You guys at Microsoft, just call us when you have a question about how to version your next. We'll we'll help you. We'll 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 help you out. No problem. (laughs) Unfortunately, we're all stuck following Microsoft's lead, whether we like it or not. So CSLA 3 is a relatively minor upgrade from CSLA 2.1. And I actually considered calling it version 2.2, but I put a poll on my forum, and overwhelmingly the votes were to call it 3 to keep the version in sync with .NET. Right. And that makes sense to me. But now you're having exactly the same pain that Microsoft's having, where people are thinking, I have to upgrade to .NET 3 to move to CSLA 3, and this is a major change. I better do a full regression test on everything. And Like the ripples from a stone tossed in the pond. It's <sighs> true. Yes. And it's it's sad because CSLA 3 has a whole host of features and some bug fixes and so forth that are of great value to people still using .NET 2.0. Yeah. And so, like I said, I'm having to put some serious effort into pointing out that even if you're using .NET 2, you should upgrade probably to, to um, CSLA 3 just to get these other features. So, and you're you're not going to load any libraries that require three if three isn't available. In other words, that's right. Yeah. And in fact, I even went back, uh, and this was again based on feedback from people on the forum, and put a compiler switch so that if you want, you can uh, compile CSLA three without even including any of the .NET three code. Excellent. It just chops it out. Nice. We should go into, I mean, one of the strengths of CSLA as a whole is this great community around it that uh, that helps people understand what to do. Um, it's The forum is unbelievable, like this, the amount of traffic that goes on in there. Very serious, folks. There's your books. Because actually, this product's free, isn't it? Yeah, that's in what the I was going to say. This is a free product, but you have to buy the book. That's true. That's exactly right. So, or, or the product costs... $55. It comes with a book. You can look at this two ways, Rocky. One way is to say, man, he could have made a big, you know, a product out of that and made some real money. And the other way is, man, he'll never stop selling books now. <laughs> well, that's my hope is I'll never stop selling books. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. Um, book comes yeah, with a product. You can look at it either way, I guess. But yeah, the fact is you can go download the, um, you know, 3.0. Uh, off my website, and it costs you nothing at all. But then the documentation really is in the form of the book. So if you don't buy the book, you're kind of sifting through the source code on your own at that point. And right now, the books that's out there is the uh, handbook for 2.1, right? Yeah, what is the book? Let's name it. Well, right now, the books that are available are the expert 
C-sharp or VB 2005 business object, and that describes version 2.0. And then there's an ebook that I put out called the CSLA.net version 2.1 handbook that brings you up from 2.0 to 2.1. And I'm most likely going to be coming out with a some sort of a 3.0 ebook uh, later this summer. No more paper. I was listening to that show that you did with Chris Sells and Don Box a few weeks ago about publishing, and uh, you know a lot of what they said is absolutely correct that that the book publishing market is not what it once was. Um, not only that, it's probably doomed it for technical doomed. books. And, and at the same time, one of the points that didn't come through on that, at least in my view, is that you can say things in a book format that you can't say in a blog or in a magazine format because, uh, and it depends on the kind of book. I, I totally agree that reference books are almost certainly dead or doomed. Yeah. But, but I would hope at least that, you know, my books, the business objects books are, are a complete narrative from start to end. And it's, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, maybe you can pull out bits and pieces in the middle, but to get the whole thing, you, it has to be a, in a linear, um, you know, it's a, it's a story arc in a sense. So as a PDF file, maybe, but as a blog to random access to jump around kind of? Yeah, I think that's the case. And maybe I'm wrong, you know, but um, so I'm, I'm considering doing a Visual Studio uh, or an Expert 2008 business objects book based around Visual Studio 2008.NET 3, 3.5, and all the other stuff. And uh, you know, whether I do that or not, I haven't decided, but and, and it may be the last book I do if, in fact, the you know, book sales continue to go down and so forth. But I, I, I'm not ready to give up yet is the thing, because I don't know how to express some of these bigger, longer ideas um, outside of that format. How are the, how is that? Ha- I mean, I could just see you putting out another handbook for 3.0. Did did the 2.1 handbook work? Do people get it? Do they use it? Yeah, I think that you know it's interesting because when you have paper books, you get listed on Amazon and you get into all of the major bookstores, and so you sell at least a few thousand copies that way. And yeah. you know, ebooks don't sell at least currently, at the same level. So you maybe sell a few hundred instead of a few thousand. Well, but and then, also, admittedly, the e-books are only sold at one place, whereas, you know, it is global, but it's one place, whereas the uh, paper books are sold all over the world simultaneously. Exactly. And and, and there's, a, there's a difference in the way it's marketed, of course, because right. when they're, you know, paper books, there's a lot of parties that have vested interest in getting paper books to sell. Yes. And with an ebook, I'm the only party that has a vested interest. <laughs> I, I I was under the impression that ebooks don't do well in general. That people are disappointed in ebook sales. I even uh, Stephen King, I think, did an experiment where he he made one book that was only available as an ebook and it didn't sell as well as his paper book, so he decided to go back to writing paper. I mean that's Stephen King, but you know. That has been my experience. Like I said, I've sold a you know thousands of paper books and a, and a few hundred ebooks. So yeah. if you're trying to reach a lot of people, an ebook is not really a great venue. And you think probably yeah. because it's digital, people say, well, I feel like I'm getting ripped off here. You know, I get bits for free every minute of every day. Why are you charging for yours? Maybe that's it. Just that push may be back. the case. On the other hand, I don't feel any qualms about charging for it because I hired tech reviewer uh, people and, of course and not. Uh, had it had it edited just like it was a book, and so I, you know, and it's interesting because when you go through a publisher, of course, that's what effectively what you're paying them to do, or why they, you know, they take a percentage of everything because they're doing all these services. And when I did the ebook, um, I directly had to hire the services myself. Um, although I was lucky in in one sense in that my wife was able to do all the editing, so I did not have to hire an editor. What we got to do is we got to make a printer that binds books, you know, the book binder 2000. <laughs> you just download, make a book. Boy, wouldn't that well, be a waste? 
a couple people have aimed me at, at there are a couple different sites out there that that kind of are uh, pay as you go publishers that right. will in fact do the book binding. Cafe and, Press being one of them. Yeah, and and uh, Lulu I think was another yeah, one. Yeah, Lulu. And you know, so that's an option that I might consider at some point too. You know, then you get listed as a real live book too. Hmm. You're back into the whole Amazon type thing, you know, print on demand. But still, I gotta think, Rocky, though, that if anybody can sell paper books in a bookstore, you, you probably have a better chance than many books that are out there because you have such a unique book. You know, I don't see a lot of competition with your book in particular because it's so specific. Yeah, I think there is that, and there are not too many books out there that are are trying to walk through how to build an application and and or framework from start to end. And you know, to some degree, I can see why because it's not an easy book to write. It's a <laughs> lot of work. It, it takes a lot. Have you ever considered uh, turning this into a commercial product? I mean, there's certainly products out there that do th- even less than yours do that. Uh, that people are paying for, so I have considered it, um, and I haven't ruled it out, uh, you know, as a long-term thing. And so, part of the, in fact, the only constraint in my license is that you can't take the framework and try and resell it. And the yeah. reason is that someday I might want to, but at the same time, um, yeah, I've been fortunate in that, you know, working for Magenic, um, I'm able to spend enough time making the framework do what I want to do yeah, and still helping to build Magenic's business. And so it kind of, it's been very synergistic and I haven't felt the need to go commercial. And I, I kind of like the fact that people can just go out and download it and use it. And, it, you know, it's built this great community that I, I'm not sure would exist it were it a commercial product. Just um, before we wrap up the discussion about CSLA.net, I just want to pass on some things that I've heard that your 2.0 version is greatly, greatly improved over your 1.0 version, that there is much much less work involved to implement an application with CSLA.NET 2.0 and now 3.0 as an extension than, than your first iteration of it. And I, uh, I, that came, uh, became obvious to me when we did the last .NET Rocks on CSLA.NET. You're taking advantage of all the data binding features in .NET 2.0 and uh, all the great features um, underneath so that there's a lot less work for the developer. So I just wanted to sh- put that out there to anybody who tried using CSLA.net in the first version and then said, wow, this is going to be too much and, you know, started using data sets or something. Well, and it's always been the, – the funny part is that it's always an overhead to learning a framework, but – the uh, it's less work than building a framework. As soon as I need most of these features, it's worth learning it rather than building it. Right. So finally, um, I've asked you before a long time ago, you know, if you would do uh, teach a class on CSLA.net, and I guess you don't do training because of something magenic. I don't know what something they say you can't do training. Maybe they, because you'd be out of the office more more than you'd be in. But uh, uh, Miguel Castro has picked it up, and he's doing a class with Done Training on CSLA.net, and I'm very happy about that. How's that yeah, going? Yeah, I am too. I actually got to sit in on one of his classes or, or part of it uh, in July, and I thought that Miguel was you – know, I've received a lot of email feedback from people that have gone to the class. And they really enjoyed it. And sitting in on it, I can see why, because he's just got a real low-key, hands-on, uh, almost kind of a pure, continual lab style right. that I really like. Absolutely. I mean, that's been my style of teaching the whole way, too. Follow along. Follow along with Carl or follow along with Miguel. You know, it's it's very, very easy to understand when you're going through it. Um, so that's going well, I take it, and and. Where can people learn more about those training classes? Well, kind of the central point for all things CSLA is to go to www.latka.net. And so you can get the framework, and also there are links there to the uh, specific done training page that talks about the CSLA training classes okay. and uh, you know, and links to the forum. 
uh, you know, where you can tap into this broader community that has some awesome benefits to it, and and it's just kind of all in that one spot. Now you you do mentoring, don't you? Which is different than training. It is, and that is all done through Magenic, and, and in fact, Magenic has got quite a few consultants that are very good at mentoring and helping get people or companies up to speed on CSLA and because yeah, you can go through the three-day training and really get a good sense for what's possible. But like with any training, by the time that you fly home, you know, you're like, oh, man, that was awesome. Now if I could only remember. Right. <laughs> right. Well, Rocky, any uh, last-minute words uh, or shout-outs or hi, Mom, or anything that we missed? No. Well, I would like to say thank you to the community again. I in building 3.0, I got so much great feedback from people and support, you know, different ideas and testing and so forth. And, you know, without the community putting all that effort into it, there's no no way the product would be what it is. And so um, that, that's the primary people that I want to thank. Excellent. Well, I'm sure they want to thank you just as much. <laughs> so on behalf of the entire community, thank you for putting out such an awesome product and being so forthright with information. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. This was fun. You bet. Okay, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.